Hi, and welcome to episode 174 of the Untethered Podcast. Today we have Dr. Amy Lubin joining us. Amy is a board-certified biohacking, laser airway-focused, innovative pediatric dentist. She loves children, finding minimally invasive solutions to root cause problems, and she believes each and every individual has everything they need inside of themselves already to be their very best selves. So her role as a healthcare provider is to remove obstacles and enrich the environment to allow all of her patients to take off and thrive. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Well, Amy, I was, I was actually sitting in my bed last night, like thinking about our conversation we were going to have today. I was like so excited after the initial phone conversation we had, and I know all the listeners are going to just eat this episode up. So welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited. And I, my associate, I was talking to you yesterday and she's like, oh, you're going on that podcast. I totally listen to that podcast every week. That's so exciting. And so just thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited too. This is going to be yeah. fun. It is. We're going to have fun. Um, and we have very similar interests and in like the early intervention birth to three, you know, age group. And so I'd love for you to share how you got into working with that birth to three age group and just, you know, what is it you're doing in, you know, in your space with that, that age group as well? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so of course I'm a pediatric dentist, so that kind of lends itself to the kiddos, but even as a pediatric dentist, um, we don't, you know, we're not even trained to start at birth for sure and residency. Um, so that's a lot of afterwards, but, um, gosh, I think the way I kind of got into the world of really treating babies was through Mark Moeller and his group and going to Joy's class and then, um, laser courses and so forth. But, um, Jessica Altamera, um, helped me to set up, I think, the third interdisciplinary clinic in the United States. Um, so we have an osteopath, or I have also a chiropractor who does cranial osteopathy, um, as well as three IBCLCs. Um, and so we brought that group together. It was originally Rosalba and myself and our osteopath, Elena Williams. And that was just wonderful. That's kind of where we started with having this approach. Um, you know, we asked the patients to get ready outside the practice, but I wanted someone there to verify because I'm not a body worker and, you know, not all are equal. So sometimes there were red flags. We found, you know, broken clavicles and mm. um, one kid we actually sent away to get work on and they had a cancer diagnosis. Like we're very observant and looking at the whole baby. And that's, that's been such a huge learning experience. Um, and then <clears throat> I, I would say probably some years into doing that, I started noticing, I like to see the kids every three months for the first three years of life, if they live close enough. Um, and what I was doing during that time was seeing, did we heal nicely? Do we have, are we meeting our milestones and also looking at the jaws? And I noticed that for most babies that were born with tongue tie and who had a high palate at one and two and three, they were still having a high palate. And this stressed me out because what I had learned in all my CE is like, fix the tongue, breastfeed, try some baby led weaning, and it's going to be all great. And it it's, it's really not all great for a lot of kids. They still don't have the structural changes for lots of reasons. So that kind of just, you know, got under my skin. Like, what can I do different? What can I do different? Then I learned um, from Derek Nordstrom because I'm an ALF provider. So I learned about a neonatal ALF. Um, and so I tried that a little bit, but I just, I think the pandemic kind of happened sometime shortly after starting that. So I stopped doing that a bit. Um, well, then fast forward um, maybe a year ago and we had, a little kid come to our practice that was almost two and um, was being referred for tongue tie. And we sent them for the team approach to a really awesome SLP at low tone, all these other issues. 
dad found him in his crib two weeks later and it was just heartbreaking. And I thought, I cannot like sit around and just watch these kids until they're at an age where I have appliances that I know work. So that got me started with my, my people, my clan, and we have been innovating. And so now we're working on, and because it is a little bit of a labor of love and kind of a lot of work, um, but we're seeing tremendous results. Um, and I'm doing now zero to three-year-old trying to widen their palate with an osteopathic complementary appliance through a team approach. And that's been super exciting. And also doing the laughter laser assisted functional therapeutic release and baby laces, also what it's called, it's the same procedure. So that's been another game changer, helping us to see sometimes differentially what's a tie or not a tie. So that's kind of where my heart is right now um, in developing um, better things because there's not a lot of options for them if they have airway issues or sleep issues at this time. Oh my gosh, we said so many things and I was just like sitting here like, yes, yes, yes. Oh my gosh. We've, we've had a provider on the podcast in the past who's used baby lace and, and talked a little bit about it. Um, like very briefly, it wasn't really the focus of the episode. So um, so there's that and then SIDS and like just some different things that came up and I'm like, oh goodness, these are such great topics. So with baby lace, right? You mentioned you're, you're able to use it to determine if there's a true, you know, restricted tissue versus what tension maybe surrounding the area. Is that what you're finding? And you can release yeah. that tension. And I'll share a screen. This is um, a, this is an adult, but just kind of for fun to show you um, a example of doing this laser procedure on an older patient. So can you see that? Yeah. Um, so this is obviously an older patient, but um, you know that we want to get a patient from here to here to have a really nice release. This patient's not ready, this patient is, takes a lot of body work and myofunctional therapy and the surgery is so much nicer and easier on this one, but it only took us five minutes to get the patient from here to here. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's the power of the um, laser procedure. Um, I got to co-teach the first baby lace course with Angie Tenholder um, and it just didn't, it, it was obvious that wasn't gonna work out for me to go and teach with her often. So I asked Derek, I also teach osteopaths and chiropractors a lot more. Um, and so I asked him if I could trademark it under a different name because there was an issue with the original name and so forth. So that's why it has two different names because gotcha. um, we teach it differently. But it is a psychosensory therapy and it's also has a lot of direct effects. So um, the direct effects, if you look at some of the work on fascia, we know that um, normal fascia can change shapes, right? So if, if you're gonna hit me in the arm and I know it's coming, I'm gonna armor my fascia and that's gonna be one type of response versus if I didn't know and I don't armor. So that's kind of like to give you a mental picture of how fascia can change shapes. And so with any age patient, I have like in the presentation, which um, maybe we'll bring up, maybe not, but um, basically there are a lot of different things that can make someone's frenum get short and tight. So secondary airway issue, because the genioglossus muscles are airway dilator muscles, um, they can in effect, basically short and tighten and pull the tongue forward using part of the frenum. Um, and so when you look at that patient, you'll think, oh, that's a tongue tie for sure. Just look at it. But when you apply the laser, it liquefies the hyaluronic acid. So hyaluronic acid is our lubricant and it should be loosey goosey everywhere. And when you're like this from, you know, typing all day, you think your muscles hurt, but you really have fascial strain patterns and, and gummy fascia. So the laser at the specific wavelength, the 1064, liquefies the hyaluronic acid on contact. So what'll usually happen from that is you'll see that change like of that tongue that I showed, I call it Cobra tongue, but mm -hmm. um, you'll see this change. And sometimes in children, we'll see the front end double or triple in length. Oh, so wow. when you have a posterior tie, it's like, oh, well, it's pretty far back there, but wow, it's so short. A lot of those aren't as short as you think. Um, low tone, core instability, these are other things that can cause the person to use that deep fascia line to kind of keep it all together. Um, so the laser gives us that little window to say, oh, okay, this isn't a structural problem. This is a functional problem. And then the psychosensory part of it is really powerful. And that I teach that so I could go into a lot of that, but um, it helps to integrate primitive reflexes. It helps with preverbal trauma and just trauma in general in older patients um, through that limbic system and the window that it opens. And yeah, it, it does really powerful things. Um, and even though we're staying in our scope of practice as a dentist, 
you know, the brain is just right under these big muscles right here and things yeah. like that. <laughs> so I think some of it is also the, the transcranial laser um, aspect of it, which is pretty powerful. Um, so did I answer it? Yeah, no, it's, it's so fascinating. It's one of those things where, um, first of all, I just want to mention real quick, any slides that are shared, you, you can uh, view on YouTube. We always post our episodes on YouTube. So we'll make sure that you guys have the link to that. Um, but basically it was initially a picture of a, a tongue that looked a bit more heart shape actually when it was ready for release than it did initially um, in the initial photo. And it's so interesting because I know like sometimes we get kids with these like truly like heart shaped tongues and like, look, yes, there are real tongue ties. Nobody's questioning that, but it's one of the reasons that we always recommend regardless of presentation, we recommend, you know, our intervention as well before you just send a child or adults into a release. Um, one, we have to prep, right? But two, there's usually always some degree, at least we find, of tension surrounding a tethered tissue because of compensations. Like there's just no right. way around that. The body has to compensate. It's naturally going to do that. You're going to then carry tension. Where you carry the tension may vary. The degree in which you carry it may vary. But if, especially in families who are hesitant and you know younger children, if we can have avoid these procedures, then by all means, like, let's see what we can do behaviorally or with, you know, things like myo feeding laser, you know, like what we're talking about here, what can be done to see if we can bring the child back to function and out of dysfunction. And so I love that these kinds of conversations are happening. Cause I think that publicly it's usually tongue tie versus not tongue tied and release it or don't release it. It's there's, it's everybody tries to make it so black and white. And we're like, when you actually work with these patients, there's so many more variables. And like you said, there are other things that can make the tongue appear to be restricted. It could even be a small palate where the tongue just doesn't fit. And it's just behaviorally learned to rest on the floor of the mouth. And they have challenging time lifting the tongue up, you know, it's they're They've never had to before. So why would they start now? You know, I, one of my therapists, um, sent me, a showed me a video of a patient she actually interv interviewed, assessed <laughs> yesterday. And um, she said, she was like, you know, this five-year-old, they couldn't elevate his tongue at all. And you see these children, you know, raise their head and neck up and try to then take their fingers to lift their tongue up. And that doesn't mean, I mean, he appears tongue-tied right now, but he's new, we'll see what happens. Um, it's one of those things where we don't know how far we're gonna get usually in our sessions within like three sessions or so, and that's like initial eval and two to three sessions afterwards, we typically are able to get, you know, and, and obviously referral, you know, referring out, working with others, body work, everything is important component here. Um, but we can usually determine, okay, this needs to, this child needs to go for a release consult or this child really doesn't let's continue to work together here. Um, cause our goal is never to keep a child in therapy and our goal is never to release, to send a child for a release consult who may not need it, you right. know? And so I just, I love your team approach. I love the model. I love that you have all these providers, you know, at, at, at the disposal of your patients they are able to, you know, they trust who they're working with. Everybody's kind of on the same page. You can have that interdisciplinary, you know, um, case review and conversations. It's just, it's so powerful. And I, you know, I always talk about, I remember this one case where it was my entire team and then some other providers as well, and multiple disciplines sitting around my kitchen table. And we literally passed a computer around a laptop around the table with the case. We'd all seen this patient with the exception, I think of one of the like PT osteopaths and the way that we presented the case and what we were concerned about was different from every single provider that <laughs> saw this case. And as we all started to discuss it, it just became, and this was like years ago, but like, it just became so apparent how critical these conversations are. And really at how much of a disadvantage patients are at when they don't have the ability to have this team approach. So anyways, I'll shut up, but oh, you know, I just so love good. your model. <laughs> no, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's probably been maybe seven years ago that I started um, an interdisciplinary study club. I think it's the first one like it, um, at least in our area. And, um, and so our first scope, um, uh, so it's, um, um, <clears throat> IBCLCs, um, SLPs, uh, sometimes midwives, doulas, um, osteopaths, chiropractors, uh, myofunctional therapists, uh, pediatrician, functional pediatrician, now pediatric neurology. So, so I totally hear what you're saying because what was so wonderful about that group is I remember going like, 
what's the difference between an osteopath and a chiropractor? I really don't know. And like, yes, how do you, and so that and CST and, you know, you start to, you need to know what yes. these different domains specialize. Like, what are, what do you do? And exactly. <laughs> and so, and like another thing I was just, um, on a call last week, um, kind of doing a little teaching thing. And, um, one of the people in the Q and a time was saying, oh yeah, well, do you think that laughter is great? as a psychosensory therapy, like EMDR, because EMDR doesn't cover certain things. And Karen D was on there with me. And um, so anyway, long story short, I'm telling him what I think about blah, blah, blah. And Karen D's, and I, and I noticed he had a torsion, like, cause I just look at people and I'm like, oh, left side bend, you know, kind of that sort of thing. And so I was like, you know, it looks like you have a torsion. And then Karen D chimes in and she's like, yeah. So if your sphenoid is actually, you know, lopsided, so to speak from the torsion, then the I EMDR, EMDR therapy is not going to be as powerful for that person. And that's probably something that the EMDR person doesn't even really think about. So I absolutely feel like collaboration. I have learned so much. And the, my first experience was at the craniofacial team at Seattle Children's Hospital when I was an attending there and on that team. And that's when you'd sit there on Monday morning and recover a few cases and you have the whole team there. So you see what your role really is for that patient. And sometimes your role is little to none or like a way back seat because there's all these other things going on. And also, like you said, if they're, if they're getting a tongue tie release and they have one of these other issues, those are those babies and kids that are healing tight because the body will use that opportunity to scar it up and make that tension really secure. Um, so yeah team approach. There's just no other way to do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I know it reminded me of one of those conversations. We had a vision therapist who also had OT, but it was a, a very interesting couple where they were both vision therapists. Um, but the wife was also an OT. And mm -hmm. so it just the brilliant, brilliant yeah. practice, but hearing from them, how like the impact on vision therapy and the, you know, and then yeah. the impact of vision therapy on Mayo and, and I'm sitting here going like, well, yeah, because you, you know, you're talking about vision yeah. and eyes and right. occipital load and the smidoid bone. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. Okay. Hold on. Yeah. And now it makes sense. And I'm like, and these, okay. And you start like putting all the pieces together, but it's, it's just so fascinating. And we always say like, we're connected from the tip of our tongue to the tip of our toes. Like right. everything is interconnected with fascia, but also we have bones. <laughs> like, there's, no, you know, like I actually changed my vision in my late forties. I started doing ALF and I got 11 millimeters more arch length um, in my late forties by doing the alpha appliance. And I had two different prescriptions in my eyes cause I'm missing a lateral on this side and I finally made room and now I'm consolidating. But um, the, there were two different prescriptions. And in the process, when my palette went from super asymmetrical, asymmetrical to more broad and even now my vision's the same in both eyes cause the roof so of the mouth is the floor of the eyes. I know yeah. we just don't think about that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I did um, D the DNA vivos and my, I remember like my dental colleague and I, like we were sitting, she's like, you're developing cheekbones. Do you realize like <laughs> you have cheekbones that like were hidden before? She's like, they've always been there, but you couldn't see them. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it was just, it was so interesting to see like the changes, but also, you know, symmetry and, you know, to the extent that I can as an adult, it was, it was very fascinating. And I look at my face like then versus now. And I had ortho, I had all, you know, I also had relapse and all the things, but yeah. And just nasal surgery three months ago that I'm still healing from, but you know, it's, it's an ongoing process and every step of the way, well, I tell everyone it's a journey. It's an investment in time, energy, money. Like it's totally worth it. Like I can breathe through my nose equally on both sides. Now it's pretty cool. <laughs> Who knew that would be such a cool right. thing. Right. <laughs> um, speaking of which, so going back to our like birth to three, you know, population, when do you, since I know you get them in there earlier on than maybe even some other, other dentists, when are you seeing those initial signs of airway issues or sleep yeah. issues and whatnot? Let me go ahead if it's okay. And I'll share yeah. again and I'll show you, um, I put together some signs of, um, of airway issues in the zero to three-year-olds. So first, um, Hallie, I wanted to say that, um, well, let me screen share this here, but um, that it's not a very well-defined problem. Um, so if you Google right now, um, and ask, um, what are signs of sleep issues or airway issues in infants to toddlers, other than SIDS information, there's really not a lot out there. There's some new research out there, which is kind of concerning, um, but there's very little, 
amount of information um, and it's a growing problem. And I could talk a lot about why I think that's happening, but it's happening a lot more in infants and young children having sleep disordered breathing. Um, and so there, the current situation is if you have someone really young, it's, it's a sleep study and a CPAP. If, if this, if it's severe, if it's not severe enough for that, then it's like, let's watch it. But at a certain point, they're too young for adenoids or tonsils to come out. I'm a root cause girl anyway. So I don't send, I don't lose very many tonsils or adenoids in my practice, but here are some signs and symptoms that we have collected in my study club. We just, um, right now, so we did zero to six month old for six years. I mean, literally six years. We talked about zero to six month old pre-crawling infants. Um, and now we've expanded to zero to three years old. And next um, month, uh, pediatric neurologist who treats sleep and the youngest of kids who I collaborate with a lot, um, she's going to be speaking to us. So these are some things you might notice. Open mouth posture, rest, a low tongue posture, audible breathing, retractions, snoring is never okay, um, the high narrow or misshapen palate. Um, so here's some you might not know though. Um, when you lay a little baby down, one of my friends, I, I didn't have time to see if I could borrow his video and show, but he's in Singapore and he has this great little video where there's this one baby and it's so cute, but you know, it's kind of fussy and moving and making little noises and you lay that baby down on its back and it's very, um, uncomfortable. You can see that. And it immediately turns to the side. And I see so many babies, like once it's in my head of like, oh my gosh, this baby's struggling. Now I can't not see it, but I think of how many parents and just people in the world are just, oh, it's a fussy baby. I have to, he just likes to be held, mm -hmm. um, you know, or we, or, you know, he's got this or that, but it's when you lay a tiny baby down and they're turning, that's, that's a red flag. And um, sometimes you'll have uh, parents saying, oh, my baby's so strong. He's got such a strong neck. No, it's not a strong neck. He's trying to breathe. Um, and then um, the babies that aren't born with torticollis, although having torticollis makes them, you know, set up for some other things. But um, when they develop torticollis in the first few months, again, it's that really strong preference because turning the head to the side helps them to breathe. Um, arching, even though we think of arching a lot with digestion and, and reflux, but it also can be a sign of, um, of airway issues. Um, a baby that uh, thrusts their tongue forward. So also we see episodic masseter activation. That's basically those babies that are moving their jaws a lot, that's precursor to grinding. And grinding, we know, opens the airway. Um, and so reflux, so that's Bernoulli's principle. If you have a restricted upper airway, that can create a negative pressure gradient, which causes reflux to happen. Um, and then that creates other issues, but uh, of course, dark circles. And then as you enter the toddlerhood, it makes me so sad sometimes for preschoolers and toddlers, because I feel like this whole terrible too, like, my daughter wasn't a terrible two. And I don't think terrible twos or some people, oh, he didn't do terrible twos, he's doing terrible threes. I think some of this meltdown, um, low frustration tolerance um, and just really challenging babies and toddlers, we might be missing an airway issue. Um, that's my perspective. And so I'm really looking a lot closer at that um, now than I ever have before. And like I said, really just trying to collaborate and figure out ways to help these, these young ones sooner because it's completely life-changing to be able to sleep versus not sleep in those really um, formative years. So um, yeah, so options, uh, you can go to an ENT if they're too little. Um, I have a patient right now that is, 20 pounds, gonna be three in October. Adenoids, 100% blockage, tonsils kissing, um, has had multiple fall head injury things and she has severe sleep apnea and she doesn't have all of her teeth in. So that's the big challenge when they're growing teeth, it's changing so rapidly. How can you get something to be retentive, but not um, lock up the cranium and things like that. So that's, um, but anyway, so neonatal alpha, I've had that for a while, zero to six months, but now we're, I haven't named the new appliance yet, but I'm working on it. And um, yeah, and then laughter. And that's another, using the laser non-surgically can sometimes get kids pretty far along, like pretty big changes. And then that may bias time if they're not urgent to put in a, an early appliance. But, um, but yeah, so that's what else I have. Oh, um, so like why the reason I, some of the reasons I think it's happening more common, we know from like Kevin Boyd and others work that mom who have hypoxia and sleep issues during birth, those kids are born more retronathic. 
um, they are um, born just already predisposed to be mouth breathers and have hypoxia. Um, mouth breathing leads to enlarged tonsils and adenoids and inflammation of the airway and so forth. Um, we also used to breastfeed until the fourth year of life, which is like crazy to think about it, right? But for, and in Mongolia, they still go to seven or eight, but breastfeeding, a lot of people don't realize um, that it really is the first thing that we do that decompresses the cranium because it's 23 bones floating in fascia meant to get really squished on the way out. And horses walk within a few minutes of birth, but humans take a year. So we're really neurologically immature, which gives us so much room for sophistication, but it also leaves room for a lot of error and challenges and gaps. Um, so breastfeeding helps to do that decompression initially. And the, the way the jaws move as you know, is much different on a, a bottle versus breastfeeding. And then solid foods, we used to give babies a little slab of beef jerky with no nitrates and sugar at six months and be like, work on that. Um, so we don't do those things anymore. And um, I think those are the biggest factors related to um, changes, but I don't, I'm talking too much. So no, <laughs> like, no, this is great. This is great. And it's, it excites me to hear these types of symptoms because I feel like I, for my own children. And then from my private practice and experience in the courses that I've created, I've pulled these symptoms into my courses. And I've said like, this is what we're seeing in infants. We're seeing like you talked about, um, masseter, you know, activation. I think that's probably the only thing that I haven't really highlighted. Everything else on your list is in my course. And like, I've, you know, even educated on social media about these things, these babies with the strong, tight neck at birth. Those are both of my kids. And everyone's like, wow, your children have such strong necks. Look at them, hold their head up literally at two days of life. And I was with my first, I was like, wow, I have a picture in the hospital on day two with my first daughter she's on my chest, but her, like, you know, her shoulders, her neck, her head completely just straight up holding her own head up. Wow. Um, my second daughter, I then knew that was not normal. And so we did start <laughs> intervention much sooner. Um, she, they were like, well, she doesn't have torticollis, but here's a paper with exercises to do at home. that says torticollis. <laughs> I was like, I don't care what you call it. Like, let's just figure out how to, you know, help her develop properly early. Yeah. Um, so, you know, living it as a mom, I think also just gave me that passion to be like, what are these other symptoms that people are not like connecting the dots on? Like you did such a beautiful job of kind of pulling in such a nice list of, of common symptoms that we see in these kids. And another one that I talk about too, is like tripod sleeping. Like my kids always, especially my first daughter would flip herself onto her stomach, which was scary. Cause she was like a couple months old and only wanted to be a belly sleeper ever. And she sometimes would have her little booty up in the air, you know, with her head on her hands at, as an infant, as a young infant, in the first six months of life. And it continued beyond that too. And I'm just glad that I lived in bliss seven years ago and had no idea that was an airway issue because now I don't think I would ever sleep. You know, I'd be constantly trying to reposition her, figure out like, what the heck do we do? So she doesn't put herself into a state where she may become a child with, you know, who dies in their sleep. And it's just, you know, it's, it's like a sad truth that I now know. Um, my second daughter was a back sleeper mostly, but we also, we intervened much earlier on, like day five with the tongue tie release, I was kind of prepping her body. We were doing all kinds of things. You know, I was, we took her to CST and osteo, not until later on. I did just, you know, PT and, you know, for her, it was like, okay, we're doing PT and it's like keeping her hitting her milestones, but like, we're not really closing any gaps. Like she's still kind of on the far end. And I feel like I'm, I'm not convinced that this is like doing anything. I think it's just making me feel better. And mm -hmm. so that's where I finally was like, okay, I need somebody else. And that's kind of what threw me into being like, all right, I need to understand what these osteopaths do and these chiros do with these babies and these, you know, CS, you know, anyway, so I took her to both CST and osteopath and it was like a whole world opened up for her with just a couple of sessions total. She went from not walking to standing up, like walking. And then she was also a kid who like dragged her, one of her knees behind her and did that little scoot on the knee across um, the room. And, and so instead of working, you know, against the grain, we kind of went with it and all of a sudden everything released and she was crawling on both knees after she knew how to walk. And, you know, and that's where I was just like, okay, there is something more to this, like reflex integration, our nervous system, perhaps like, why is nobody talking about this? Yes. I was trying to stop the share here, but I lost the ability to do that. Oh, um, sorry. 
No, um, you're fine. Let's see if it'll let me. Yeah, I, 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 um, I have a, a lot of pictures too, but again, I know it's a podcast, but I'll show you, for example, um, just randomly, but this, this is one of my favorites to show um, because in, in this picture, you know, we talk about the connection from head to toe mm-hmm. and this little girl, yeah. you know, of course had crowding um, wow. and, but her posture, her whole anterior chain has her forward. Um, and this is about eight months of just doing a little bit of, oh, hold on a second. Um, of doing a little bit of all the stuff that we're talking about. And it's just such a beautiful change. Um, The, I think I had a picture of her teeth somewhere too, because, you know, Dennis, we make sure it's, yeah. So you can see like, that's, I feel like that's our door in, right? My door in is the mouth, but I get to make changes of the whole body. And Mm -hmm. that's super duper exciting. Um, The reason I was showing this is just because this is a more, dated back skull and look mm-hmm. at the crane look at the cranium and look at the jaw where it is um and this is just a few hundred years ago i mean yeah. that's just so so sad yeah. how much change we've had um it's, it is incredible how we are moving out of or not moving out of but we're our our draw, jaws just continue to shrink and i know there's that conversation that's happening about how you know from one generation to the next like we are like, when does it stop? How do we yeah. stop it? How do we stop yeah. this progression and maybe even attempt to reverse it? You know, it's, it's, there's a whole Pottinger's cat book and all that, which yeah. I'm sure you've read. <laughs> um, yeah. The, um, there's just, but there's so much more available too. I mean, I don't know how plugged in you are or your um, listeners to biohacking, but that's another really huge area where I'm definitely a biohacker. I've always been sort of um, early adopter and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, we're even working. So this is another kind of like tidbit. And I feel like I can just retire a happy woman if I'm able to accomplish this goal. But you know how many, so many kids, thanks for doing that, have, um, have um, persistent adenoid enlargement. So typically mm-hmm. when I place the biomimetic tongue appliance, um, the adenoids and tonsils just drain and everything drains and we don't lose them. They shrink. I, mine shrank for the first time ever. I went from like, usually I'm a three or a four, almost had them removed a few times to a one. And, um, that was my daughter with the elf. Yeah. It's so cool. I have the CT that shows like the before and after of her sinuses, her adenoids. And you know, people think I'm nuts. And I'm like, this happened in three months time, having that appliance in, we got it in an August, end of August, her adenoids shrunk in her tonsils during the cold and flu season in Maryland in the cold yes. weather. Yes. Tell me this was not the appliance. And we did absolutely nothing else. It is the biomimetic tongue. So it's basically doing the job for the tongue until the tongue can. But there are cases, and these are, I always get the hard ones because I do love the puzzle. And um, so those kiddos that have persistent enlargement of adenoids um, typically are mold toxic. So we're having Marcons or mold issues. And, um, but I'm working with a biohacker who's created a ton of different stuff to come up with not a spray because most little kids hate them mm-hmm. and not surgery, but to shrink the tonsils and adenoids with potentially a supplement or a laser application. Um, so that's really exciting too. I think that's going to be a huge game changer for a lot of kids because, you know, nobody wants to put their kids under general anesthesia and cut body parts out and adenoids regrow and you've got to ask why they're that way and correct. Right. And then body. there's that whole debate, like, well, adenoids are part of our immune system. Should we be yeah. reducing them or removing them? You know, and it's, you know, and I was like, I don't know where I stand on this topic yet, but I really like as a mother, yeah, I want to avoid procedures for my child that are invasive. She's a sensitive kid. Like she's sensory. Yeah. She's picky eater. You know, she's like had all the things like horrible breastfeeder. Like she is literally the one who threw me down this entire specialty, you know, pathway. And that whole rabbit hole was just like, Oh, okay, well, here we go. So, you know, now I've recognized it in everybody else in my family and (laughs) my patients and, you know, but it's, it, it, it was so fascinating too, because there was so much, even within the mild community, there was so much pushback that an appliance could possibly do that. And this was coming more from myofunctional. (laughs) <laughs> this is coming more from myofunctional therapists. Like I was told to, so I put a picture up of her tonsils and I was like, look, three, I was like, has anybody seen this happen? Cause the, you know, my dentist was like, look, like, and she was going through the training. She was like, I'm told this can happen. But like my daughter was the youngest case she had treated yet at age four and she was newer to ALF. And she said like, you know, I, I don't want to make patients any promises. Like, yes, you know, I'm being taught X, Y, and Z. Um, she's like, but I, she's like, I want to see this stuff happen, you know, in my office. And then I can speak 
to what I'm seeing, what I've learned and so on and so forth. And so, yeah, I posted it in a large group on Facebook and I was messaged immediately by the moderator of the group and told to remove that post. I was absolutely out of my scope to suggest such a thing could even be possible. And this was like another speech pathologist in my own therapist. I was just like, you know, I was like, you know what, this is my child. Like I'm saying, this is what actually happened. Like I know firsthand, I'm not claiming that this appliance does that for all patients. I'm asking if anybody else has seen it so we can have a conversation. And I was like, but you know what? Like I'll, I'll just remove it. Like it's not worth yeah. it. It's Do not worth it. There's another one with you that is exactly the yes. same. Thing. Yeah, and now I know they're seeing with, with expansion, they're also seeing a decrease in console size. And, you know, there's actually published research that's coming out on this, which is great to see. Yeah, there is. This is okay. So just keep this picture in mind. Cause I don't want to, sh- I'm going to stop share for a second to go on the second one. So you don't see the patient's name, but this is also an SLP's kiddo. So she took these pictures. Um, and this is, I believe three months later. So, um, wow. yeah, yeah, that it happens yeah. a lot. Um, yeah. And the reason is, it's not really hard to understand, but if the tongue, so there's a picture I would love to share um, also with you. Let me go back to that one on my, on my. Um, yeah. It reminded me of Lily. Cause I have this like really great photo. I've shared it on social media of her tonsils. They're almost touching. They're inflamed. They look veiny. They don't look healthy to me. And she had a piece of like broccoli stuff in her teeth. So that was cute too. Um, but I took her to the ENT with tonsils that looked like that and was basically told that the ENT was like, I'm unimpressed by these tonsils. That was the ENT's word. Knowing that I'm an SLP, knowing what I do, working with other myotherapists and she was maybe three and a half ish, right? It was, you know, before we went into the appliance at the time. And I'm like, look, I don't want surgery for her, right. but I need her to breathe. Like, what are our options? Like, what can we do? And there, nothing, not a nasal yeah. spray, not a, and, and not, no medication, no let's monitor for three months, you know, nothing, just turn yeah. me away. And this is supposed to be the specialist in this space. And I was like, Oh yeah, no, this is what I, I tell parents. This is a conversation to have at least once a day in my practice. And I just say, listen, if you go to the ENT with a young child and you're suspecting a sleep issue, I want you to know before you go, they have four choices and only four choices. Mm-hmm. Choice number one is they're going to look and say, eh, I'm not that worried. Let's just keep an eye on it which basically means you don't qualify for the other choices in their mind. Mm -hmm. Choice two is a spray, which is a steroid. What they're trying to do is shrink them to see if that helps sleep and airway get better. Um, But nobody wants to keep their kid on steroid spray for any long period of time. And so if it works or if it doesn't work and they move to option three, which is cutting them out, what they don't tell you is generally six out of 10 times, the kids will get better right away. Four out of 10 times, they don't. And then there's a huge almost 100% relapse at two years out for sleep because the problem was not the size of those you know, tissues, it was the size of the airway. And their fourth option is a CPAP and that is all an ENT has to give you. And none of those options are um, root cause options. Mm-hmm. Um, let me show you another couple of just, um, cause I think you'll appreciate these, but I love this. Okay, so this is Kathy Holloway. She's actually a PT and craniosacral therapist. She helped, um, she helped, uh, oh, what's his name? Um, craniosacral therapist, Upledger. She have, mm-hmm. helped Upledger get his stuff going. I love this drawing of hers, right? So she goes through embryology. And what you see here is the top is all neural tissue. The bottom is all gut. And the red is what's going to be your heart and cardiovascular system. And she just says, um, when she's teaching this, and this little silver nut right here is basically the primordial mouth. That's how early, 10 days old, that that's starting to happen. And I love how she says the heart literally grows out of the mouth. Mm. And so we used to know, like, and focus so much on cardiovascular health. And then we learned like, oh, uh, neuroplasticity. And we focused a lot on that. And now we're understanding the gut. But little do we know that it's the peristalsis of the tongue from very early in, in the embryonic development that actually helps the embryo to fold in and unfold and develop. Um, and another little known fact, but about five to six weeks, the roof of the mouth, what will be the roof of the mouth, a little bit of tissue invaginates, migrates upward, and there you have your pituitary gland. And the pituitary gland is is a master gland. It's really, really important. And so not only is it so intimately um, connected, the nervous system, the gut, 
um, the heart itself and entrained, but also, you know, function like the pituitary gland. And so this is without the pituitary is something that I always am teaching in my little um, infant clinic. And so I tell parents like, you know, the bottom red line is your tongue. The top red line is the roof of your mouth. Um, they should fit hand in glove. And when they don't, you know, the yellow line represents the alterations that can happen. But um, the tongue exerts this strong force as compared to what it takes with braces. So 500 to 1200 grams of force on swallow. It only takes less than two grams to move a force with braces. What is all that force supposed to be doing when we're swallowing thousands of times a day? And one of the things it's doing is just draining all those sinuses. So there's a muscle that goes from your soft palate to directly to your eustachian tube. And it's the back part of the swallow that that, that sling muscle tugs and clears the eustachian tube. And then, so when you see little babies that are like Darth Vader babies, uh -huh like they're not pumping, their tongue isn't pumping. And so, but the other thing directly above the nose and the palate is a perpendicular bone that goes right up to your ox or to your um, um, sphenoid and, and it pumps the pituitary and releases feel good hormones and all these other things. Um, and then not to mention all that force is also meant to help us drive our growth of our face and jaws forward and wider because your airway is literally just the space in front of your spine behind your jaws. And so if your tongue is doing its job, you're going to get that great forward growth. Um, but also I think I have one. Yeah, this is a really cool one. Um, this is an amplified MRI. And so what I love about it, the left is non-amplified, the right is. You know, osteopaths have known for a long time that we have glymphatics um, or that there is movement of the cranium. But um, so I love that video because um, you can imagine where the tongue, when it's resting low or low tone, you're gonna have less movement of the entire cranium and nervous system. And when you got a really strong swallow that hits right back here, not only do you get all the drainage and all that other stuff we talked about, but you get really great motion of the cranium, which lends to great motion of, you know, brain function and all that. But anyway. Uh, yes. No, I, I love that. That was a really cool video. And, and I experienced that firsthand as a patient with my expansion, I would hit a wall and I could not like open the DNA appliance anymore. Like I, I couldn't turn it. It was just like, it wasn't that it hurt. It was like, my body's no longer responding. Like what, and I would go see, um, the PT who was PRI trained and uses what he calls modern counter strain technique. And I mean, 45 minutes with him. And all of a sudden I can move my appliance again, because now everything is motion, you know, all the motion is regained. Everything's flowing properly. It's like, I think it's very similar to like what I saw the osteopath do with my child. Yes. Um, and it was just fascinating to me. I'm like, the body is literally locked up and his whole thing is like unlocking your body and yes. you have to be able, you know, it's, it's just all interconnected. So um, everyone's like, well, what, how does that work? What do they do? And I'm like, they can explain that better than I can. I just can't tell you it works. <laughs> I don't know what he did or how I did it. And you know, over the years I've come to understand it better, but I'm I'm like it works. That's all you need to know. If I could go to back to school again, which my husband says I can't, I would be an osteopath. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I love that. Well, I know we're, we're uh, wrapping up on time soon, but I want to talk. I know we talked a little bit earlier about like non-surgical, you know, um, intervention for potential ties or faux ties, um, as well as just, you know, some of these cases where a tongue time might re reattach, especially infants and children who just heal really quickly. And, you know, maybe, maybe they are getting proper care. Maybe they're not, who knows. Um, but what, like, what do you do when these patients, cause I feel like this is happening more and more come into your office. They've already had a release. Maybe they've had two or three releases and they're not even a year old. Um, obviously there's going to be some scar tissue. I mean, what are like, what do you, and I know this is kind of a broad question, but like, no, I love this. How do you question. approach these patients? <laughs> Um, so let's see, um, I'll just answer it verbally, but I have some pictures, but, um, so first of all, I hate the term reattachment. I guess I'm the only person that hates that term because, um, in my mind, so there's two types of frenum. There's a normal one, which is just fascia, which can change shapes and properties. And there's, um, embryonic fibers that have, um, not undergone complete apoptosis, which those fibers don't stretch or change. And so we know both of those things from research. So when you release a tongue tie, assuming you did it properly, um, those fibers can't reattach. What happens next is the body decides what to replace it with. Cause we are all gonna have a frenum. The frenum attaches the tongue to the mandible yeah. and it's really important. So we're gonna form a new one. And I personally believe that any person of any age that's had one surgery 
and they're looking like the way they did before, that's a huge red flag to stop, pull back and problem solve. Because almost every single time they go in to get a second or a third one, God forbid any more than that, you end up with not only scar tissue, but the potential for oral aversion and just you know medical procedure trauma. Um, so for us, um, we work really hard to green light first. Um, that's not a fail safe, but it works really well in our practice. Um, and then secondly, we like to see them about one week and that's usually where my assistant's looking cause she's, she's probably should be a doctor at this point, but um, so she's just looking for healing alterations. Um, in the first days to weeks post-surgery, low-level laser therapy is a great tool to use. In fact, some of our families will buy a laser that we sell for $100 because it has two and a half inch penetration and it's a great wavelength for healing. You can also use it for like carpal tunnel and other stuff. But um, so we'll have them do every 48 hours low-level laser therapy. So that's in the days to weeks afterwards because we know that low-level laser therapy encourages more idealized healing. I do not subscribe to the fact that um, poor healing equates to parents not doing a good job. Personally, I think um, if we look back hundreds and thousands of years ago, um, like hundreds of years ago and also up to thousands of years ago, it was a midwife with a sharp nail that just clipped the front tissue and that allowed them to thrive. I maybe think that there's so much more going on and so many more changes and we really have wrapped our brains around that we're focused on these frenums. Um, but yeah, sometimes it's, there's a lot more going on. And so low level laser therapy is great in the initial um, time afterwards. My osteopath, I, at the time we didn't have those lasers and I just loaned her our, one of our $7,000 lasers to take home. Um, just cause I, her child was at high risk, um, anterior tie and, and she's an osteopath. She was working on them all the time, but, um, she was like, wow, that was a total game changer. Her feeling his whole body and how that helped him. Once you get past weeks or months, that's when you use, um, I developed something, I didn't mention it, but I call it laser neural therapy because neural therapy was developed in the 1920s by German, um, surgeons who noticed that after a surgical procedure, sometimes the patient would have an upstream or downstream problem with another part of their body where there was literally nothing wrong with that part of their body, but they were acting like there was, and it was from scar tissue. And sometimes their autonomic nervous system would also be off. So they would inject large needles into scars with prolocaine and into autonomic ganglia to get the results, which is very painful. I've had it. So that's what led me to go, wait, I have a laser that penetrates just as deep, blah, blah, blah. So I worked with my osteopath and we call it laser neural therapy, but it's where we target at certain wavelengths to break up scar tissue. So that's always my go-to. I try to get the frenum without any scar tissue, very supple and bouncy. Then my eyes can see if the first release was complete and, you know, or if we're dealing with an incomplete release and a still tied, you know, baby. On that note, um, I know you had Rachel Garrett recently, who she and I were, she was my first associate for six years. Um, she and I went to Dr. Giovanni Olivi, who is now a mentor of mine, and I co-teach a laser course with him. And we learned at that time in the US, everybody's taught to just do this horizontal root. And they're often, you know, CO2 or diodes, which are hot. Both of them are hot. I don't care what anyone says. Um, but we learned actually that the proper technique is to start at the insertion and go down to just above the caruncles and vertically release. And using an erbium laser with water is a dissection. It's different than melting the layers together with carbon uh, CO2 laser or diode. So we do that true dissection and we go back vertically and you don't need to go so wide. I'll show you one more picture. Um, just because I think it is, um, it's one of my favorite pictures that, so this is an example of someone who was not prepared mm -hmm. and who had a diode release and you can see all the melting together. And this is someone who was prepared who now this is even more aggressive, but why I like to show this when I'm teaching, um, surgeons, the procedure is this is normal fascia. Why do we need to open way up there? The frenum is simply right here. We don't even need to take the septum out. And in this case, we were a little aggressive. We took some of the epimycin layer. And in general surgery literature, if you take the epimycin layer at all and disturb it over those striated muscles, you always get scar tissue. So I think what we're seeing, Hallie, is that a lot of times um, people are not realizing that the way they're doing the surgery with this quick horizontal, look, mom, no blood, um, and melting all the tissue layers together you're going to get scar tissue. You can't even see your field and your anatomy so well. So yeah, yeah. we've so seen that. 
I have definitely yeah. seen that. There is a, um, there's a dentist who's kind of notorious for going really wide. And yeah. one of the oral surgeons um, said to me, well, when you go that wide, you lose the ability to go deep enough sometimes, or, or you, you don't get the entire, yeah, when you, you go get a good relief. As soon as you go horizontal, you yeah. lose your bearings and you know, like, so it's, it's a waste basically right. the, the procedure is kind of like what, what for, and um, there's no traction. Like when you're that wide the skin has so much more, so you have so yeah. much more contraction. And, and functionally we see these kids come back and they can't move their tongue any better than pre-release. And we're going like, we were racking our brains, like what gives, why is this happening? And that's why it came up at our study club. And, you know, a provider said to me, well, this is why look at, look at the type of release. And they were doing exactly what you explained, you know, releasing, you know, um, vertically more so following that tethered tissue versus just going, you know, straight horizontal line across. And so, you know, we see the differences in children who are prepped the same way, who have, you know, similar profiles, obviously there's always different variables, but the type of procedure, you know, and I'm not an expert on, on lasers. We do have, I know CO2 lasers in our area. We also have water laser, you know, and so it's, and, but we've seen really good releases from providers who are doing it the way that you're explaining. Um, and then, you know, I, I know we don't have all day to talk about this, but it's this whole idea of reconstructing the underside of the tongue and like functional, you know, frenuloplasties, especially in young children, just seems so abnormally invasive for many of these kids that and adults too. I mean, I, my provider, I think has in the hundreds of patients that we've shared over years, you know, I think ever did like three of them. And that was because there was so much skin under the tongue. It just structurally, there were other things going on. It wasn't just because of the, you know, the tongue tire, the frenum. So, uh, very interesting, like eye opening experience. And I'm all about like, how do we upset the body and disrupt homeostasis, like the least to get the child back to, you know, function. And I'm also, you know, a biohacker like you. So, you know, I think I look at things very differently than many others may even in this space. Um, but I really appreciate, you know, everything you've shared with us and your knowledge, you're just, you're brilliant. And so I'd love to hear more of, you know, more of your stuff, courses, whatever you have out there. Is there, how can people find you if they would like to? Um, well, I'm, the owner of Kidstown Dental. And so it's myself and Karen Long, who's amazing. Let me say that she's got a great hand for surgery. Um, and I teach a course twice a year with Dr. Giovanni Olivi. And so the next one's in October and we're teaching laser pediatric dentistry with an emphasis on getting the patient ready, a team approach, how to properly do the surgery with any tool. So how to modify if you're using hot lasers to do it well. Um, and I do cover a little bit of laughter, but I don't do the whole course um, in that setting. So that's really fun. And that's been a great way to meet a lot of people, but thanks for asking. Yeah, of course. So we'll have kidstowndentist.com in the show notes and everything. They can find you there. And just thank you again so much for your yeah. time, your expertise and this amazing conversation. Yeah, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much again, Hallie, for inviting me. I've had a lot of fun and I really enjoyed visiting with you today. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these myotots, airway, and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and Join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan, and you can head over to theuntetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes, um, where you can also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. 